When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is August Baker. Today, I have the great privilege to be speaking with Professor Alice Jardine. Alice is a professor at Harvard University. She's uh, worked at uh, the forefront of critical thought since the 80s, um, wide-ranging work. Prominent are issues of women, gender, and sexuality, and the analysis of politics, culture, and society. And today we're speaking with Professor Jardine about her recent book, which is the first biography of another public intellectual, uh, specifically the inimitable Julia Kristeva. The book is called At the Risk of Thinking, an Intellectual Biography of Julia Kristeva. One of the endorsements for the book was by Noel McAfee. And I thought it captured Alice's book very well. McAfee said, quote, with a light and magical touch, Alice Jardine narrates the story of Julia Kristeva's journey from the Black Sea to the Atlantic to the expanse of human singularity. In her intimate account, Jardine shows how Kristeva became one of the most extraordinary intellectuals of our era. For every reader, here is a story that will inspire us all to think more deeply, to revolt against preconceptions, and to become our own force in creating the meaning of our lives. I thought that captured, that's the end of the quote. I thought that was beautifully said and very true. Uh, it was an inspiring book for me to read. This, the book has been very well received, at, um, including winning 2021 Choice Outstanding academic title. Welcome, Alice. Hello, August. Thank you for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. We are speaking on March 29th, 
22. And about a month ago, Russia invaded Ukraine. One of the things you say in your book is that the stories dominating Kristeva's earliest memories of her childhood were shaped by two devastating totalitarian invasions. Yes, indeed. So um, perhaps uh, for your listeners, I'll clarify that the book is divided into three parts. And the first part um, covers the years from Chris Davis' birth in 1941 in Sliven, Bulgaria, until 1965 and Chris Davis' departure for Paris. Um, and the second part is her adventures in Paris. And the third part um, is um, a, a sort of uh, overview of her life and work over the last few decades since the 1980s. That first part was absolutely the most challenging part to write, in part because of my own ignorance about Eastern Europe and certainly about the history of Bulgaria. but. Also, because I was writing it during the Trump administration and the echoes and reverberations and strange complexities of of listening um, both to that historical moment of Kristeva's childhood um, in Bulgaria and what was happening in the United States. And it also brought up a lot of Kristeva's concepts and vocabulary. Um, she writes about um, radical evil. Um, she writes about the death drive, et cetera, which maybe we'll have time to get to, yeah. which of course makes today talking about this book with you and her childhood today even, even more um, intense. So uh, what I meant by the statement about her memories and these invasions, of course, is referring to the fact that um, Bulgaria was neutral, tried to be neutral um, before the Second World War, but entered as a member of the Axis powers. Um, and it, it came into the war with the Nazis, but also took a lot of distance from the Nazi regime and, mm -hmm. for example, refused um, or tried to refuse to um, uh, round up uh, Jewish people and um, would not comply with various demands of the Nazi regime. Um, and then um, by the summer of 1944, the Soviets were coming in through right. Romania and Bulgaria got in trouble with the Soviets who then declared war on Bulgaria and invaded in September of 44. And Kristeva, of course, was a young child in Sliven, Bulgaria. And she, she, as she recalls those years, early years of her childhood, she evokes, for example, um, going down to the basement of her parents' home and listening to Radio London. Um, and she gets quite excited when she talks about that. It's a very vivid memory in her mind because they had to be very quiet. And meanwhile, they were watching through the windows at the upper wall of the of the basement. And she, as she puts it, first there were Nazi boots and then there were Soviet boots. Wow. The other things that she tends to talk about, which I, I try to talk about in the book, um, tends to be at the level of affect or emotion. She talks about um, fear. 
She talks about hearing rumors of horrible things and running through the streets to get home. She talks about a sense of regulation, um, always mm-hmm. having what she needed, but not what she wanted. And she tells stories about going to her friend's house and her friend's mother giving her friend one teaspoon of water at a time and no more. (laughs) Um, She talks about um, disappointment. She talks about her, especially her father's enormous disappointment that he's trying to raise his daughters in this place that he calls the intestines of hell. Mm. Um, And And he, he he wanted to become a priest originally. Is that right? He did. He was a very devout, Orthodox Christian who um, had studied um, theology and wanted to um, continue in his efforts um, to be a theologian, and of course couldn't. Um, right. Toyed with the idea of becoming a doctor, and that was not a good idea. So, because he wanted his daughters to be educated in Sophia, he um, he, he became part of essentially the sort of sovietized ministry of religion um Mm -hmm. and uh, but he wrote a lot he wrote a lot of essays um sort of in secret and um and continued um to believe for a very long time even though they had to be very careful not to let the authorities see them going sneaking off to communion you know early right at dawn yeah one of the the things you say is um, all my childhood was bathed in this, the smell of the incense, the profusion of flowers on the altar. Beautiful. Yes. And um, she, um, she has talked quite a lot about the fact that um, Bulgaria itself, you know, um, is so full of contradiction and so full of, you know, it's where, Christianity and Islam and and Judaism all met. And then, you know, there were the Turks and there were the Nazis and there were the Soviets. And she really sees herself as having taken in um, history and, and sort of become a product of history. And then she always pauses and says, but what really stuck was those memories of in the early morning in the monastery or in the church with my father. It was the music, it was the art, it was the music, it was the smell of the flowers. And eventually those sensations, those affects I think became for her um, a symbol, uh, maybe not quite the right word, but certainly an evocation of that which escapes the kind of rationality of Soviet identity mm. in that case. But even, even later uh, for her, I think it's, it evokes what she will later in her work call the semiotic, mm-hmm. you know, that which is not part of meaning and, and logic and rationality. And she's always been more drawn, I think, to that sort of mystical magic um, than to, to logic and rationality. Well, this is, uh, I'm just kind of free associating here, but one of the things I was really interested in, so she resisted her father's uh, religiosity for a long time. And one of the th- stories you tell in the book is about uh, ultimately her um, representing atheism at the, uh, at a conference with, 
the Pope. Could you tell our listeners about that? Yes. So um, the the she had given a, a huge um, lecture, um, public lecture in Italy on her book on um, Teresa. Teresa. Um, and there were some representatives from the Vatican at that at that lecture, and they were very taken with her. And she is very clear that she's an atheist. I mean, she may have these mystical memories, but she is um, a bona fide atheist. And so um, slowly but surely, she began to receive invites to appear at um, this event in, I believe it was October of 2011. It was an event um, organized um, by uh, Pope Benedict XVI, um, where a representative from the majority of the world's religions were going to gather um, in order to um, discuss the future of the church and for the first time in history, they invited an atheist. Mm. So I include in the book this photograph that I still find Stunning. quite astonishing. Yeah. With all of these men yes. up in a row from every, in every possible outfit. Yes, costume and, or religious and, outfit, yeah. Yes, and, and Chris Deva at the very end, standing there very modestly, Right. And she spoke um, last, actually. Uh, well, they all spoke and she spoke last. And um, and the, and Pope Benedict actually was very moved. Right. By what she had to say. Right. And, and he he afterwards made the remarks looking at all of these representatives. He said, you know, no one owns the truth. Right. Outstanding. Yeah. And that was quite a uh, quite a story. Um, I, if we go back, there were four, if we go back to her, uh, early childhood, um, she, it's interesting. She says there were two stories she wanted the readers to know. And at one point you address the reader and say, there are also two stories about Kristeva's childhood that I want you to know. Could you tell, I guess that's four stories total. Could you, <laughs> could you give us one or two of those stories, whichever, um, appeals to you at the moment of course well i'll be i'll be self-involved and and tell you what i think um your listeners might want to know if they've read any kristeva or know of her and her work um because i didn't know these stories until like 2011 or 12 um and it, it made so much sense to me so Briefly, one of them was that um, she hated when she was a young girl, she hated um, girl stuff. She was given a dollhouse and she loathed it. She wanted to, to destroy it. She hated the little dolls in the dollhouse. And she would evidently just, you know, stomp around screaming that she just, she didn't want to do all of that. She didn't want to wash the dishes and right. dress the dolls, etc., and the other, and and that said a lot. And she talks about her, her books and how the, those were the precious items um, locked away in the in the cupboard. The other story she told me <laughs> also uh, made a lot of sense to me. It was new to me when she told me that she almost never cried as a child. 
like almost never. Um, and she would do things like, um, and she was very famous for it when she was quite young. She and her mother would be walking in the park and Kristeva would just take off running. Yeah. And she'd run and run and run as fast as she could until she'd fall down. And she'd stand up and she'd have scratches and blood and it would be a mess. And her mother would come running. What have you done? And she would say, Kristeva would say, she'd touch her mother's face very gently and say, oh, mama, don't worry. I'll take care of you. <laughs> and that, just like that was such a great story. Yeah. That said a lot. It certainly did. I love that. Um, let's um, jump ahead there's so much to cover um she started out as a journalist and it's difficult for us to imagine what it must have been like to be a journal. i mean for her high school newspaper it's difficult for us to imagine what it would have been like to be a journalist uh in a, a communist country um and she wrote uh, some things that put her family at some risk even when she was a teenager or I guess when she was 21 she was 21 yeah. yeah so there are a couple of things to say about that period that again I don't think very many anglophone readers know a lot about um so when um she 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 began um uh writing as a journalist quite young in her teens actually mainly for money for extra money and eventually became quite well known um, um, because of her ability to write in a very um, palimpsestic or kind of um, camouflaged kind of way. Mm -hmm. She to have the ability to write a sort of surface level story that would adhere to what the authorities and censors wanted, but she could wind through it um, the stories that she actually wanted to tell. And she was very good at it. And in um, just before she left for Paris, actually, um, well, 1962, she was 21 years old. And there was a dissident journalist named Albert Cohn, who uh, had written um, a book and no one... Roads and Stops. Roads and Stops. And no one wanted to review it because it was very much written in, it was the Khrushchev era, it was very much written in the spirit of the thaw, as they called it. In other words, a kind of renewed openness to the Western world and, um, you know, a lot of um, literary exploration. And no one wanted to review it as, except, of course, our our young Kristeva, um, <laughs> who um, perhaps naively, um, you know, wrote this, you know, absolutely sparkling review of, of the book. Um, and the next day on the front page of the communist newspaper, um, there was a headline that said, Julia Kristeva, cosmopolitan agent of the capitalist hyena. Oh, my gosh. She was called a spy. She was called a Zionist, which was, of course, an insult. And um, they were terrified. And her father, who was probably the most aware of, of the dangers of this kind of thing, um, you know, would, took her uh, to a monastery and they sort of hid out um, because he was afraid they were going to be sent away to a camp. And then to make everything worse, Radio Free Europe 
um, wrote a whole front, you know, a whole did a whole session on how brilliant um, she was. Nothing happened to them. Um, and I, mm, I suggest that this may have been because uh, she was not particularly political in the public sphere, um, except for this camouflaged writing. Right. Um, and she was getting, becoming quite well known as a, a translator. And for example, she took the cosmo, cosmonauts around. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So this, this time period when she was writing is really, really important to understand. I think she even wrote a book that nobody knows about, which I'm trying to get translated. 1964, she published a book called um, Characteristic Trends in 20th Century Western Literature. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this, um, you know, the more I looked at this um, time period when she was with all of these dissident journalists and dissident intellectuals, including her sweetheart, Setan uh, Stoyanov, um, that's really when she began to become Julia Kristeva mm -hmm. um, in an odd kind of way. I mean, this this writing, you know, which uh, Stoyanov actually called um, um, a theoretical hurricane. He said, you know, Julia, you write these theoretical hurricanes. <laughs> what she was trying to do was, was, was camouflage what she was actually writing, which was a kind of already a kind of window on the Western world. Um, and and a, and a, and a, a, in some ways almost a, a preview of some of her earliest works in French, mm -hmm. which many readers in French and English and many other languages find very, very hard to read. Right. Very Interesting. hard. And I think it's from that time. You know, we think and think of, oh, she, so she eventually uh, goes to, gets out of Bulgaria and goes to France, which easily could not have happened. It's kind of a, a miracle that it did happen. Uh, December 15th, 1965, she gets on a plane to Paris with $5. It's easy to romanticize that, but I think what I found from your book was that it was, uh, you know, extremely difficult to leave her home and her family and go and learn to think in a new language. And, uh, and she, it wasn't this heady intellectual time when she first got to Paris. No, that's right. And this was another discovery for me because I think I had sort of bought into that myth of, oh, Kristeva, you know, she went off to Paris and, you know, became immediately part of the scene there. Well, no, not exactly. She, she desperately missed her, uh, her intellectual community um, uh, in Sofia. And in fact, I, in the book, I explain that I think part of her ability to uh, find Roland Barthes and Emile Benveniste and all of these other extraordinary intellectuals of the time was her effort to recreate that sense of mm -hmm. being center of the world and being able to to really think out loud with um like-minded um friends and um but as she was looking for these friends um she was quite depressed um she missed her community she missed her boyfriends she mm -hmm. she she missed her parents dreadfully mm. she as you said she she was trying to learn to write in french 
and felt like her her Bulgarian self was was dying. Um, she couldn't quite um, figure out how to do that. It took quite quite a, a long time. Um, but eventually, because of this sort of parade of, of amazing mentors, um, she was able to find a, a community in Paris mm-hmm. and eventually, um, you know, eventually find her way and publish. And, you know, the rest is literature. She just never stopped. Right. Met her husband-to-be um, and got married in 1967. And so she did manage to do it, but it wasn't easy. It was hard. And a couple of times she got very sick. In fact, it was one of the reasons she and Philippe Solers got married was she was really, really sick and had been working so hard. Don't forget, she thought she had to go back to Bulgaria. Um, She thought she was only there for a year. And so she was just, you know, trying to, she was like a sponge. She was just going to everything and doing everything. She got really sick. And because she was from a communist country, um, they wouldn't let her give her a hospital room. And mm. Lots of stories about that. And then eventually um, she and Solas got married and she was able to, to get the medical care she needed and become more, of, more integrated into French culture, which she did more or less. This was one of the funny things you said in the book. It is actually hard for me to think of Julia Kristeva as anyone's wife. <laughs> <laughs> especially, yeah, that's that's especially out. <laughs> <laughs> my editors didn't catch that yeah it, it you know the whole I talk a lot in the book I mean I write quite extensively about that relationship which I've come to accept and I've come to understand better than than I used to um, um he is such a character um and he is such a brilliant writer um I don't but, think that our, our listeners probably know about Dominique Roland. Also, no, either. they probably don't. Yeah. So the short version is that um, when Kristeva met her future husband, Philippe Solers, he was already uh, very involved with um, a Belgian writer, a very well-known Belgian writer named Dominique Roland. And, um, who was much older than Solers. I think, I forget, I think she was 45. He was, you know, 20 something. And anyway, long story short, he, he Solers made it very clear to Kristeva that this was a lifetime relationship. And in fact, it was. Um, she passed away, Dominique Collin passed away, I think it was 2012, off the top of my head. And, um, and they were, they were quite loyal to each other. And Kristeva never, ever experienced any jealousy in her telling. And of course, the reason she gives is that her father loved her so much, so much that it didn't bother her. It was like, it was just, she, Roland was very good for Solers' writing, which was the most important thing to him. Um, and so why not? Why be jealous? She said. Right. I, you say, uh, quoting her, I was never jealous of my mother, convinced as I was that my father preferred me to her and to everyone else for that matter. It's my <laughs> symptom to believe it, certainly, unless it's my strength. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, that that relationship between Kristeva and her father, you know, I'm sure there's much more to write right. about. Um, it was absolutely um, determinant. Um, yes. And he told her to stand upright. Um, yes. <laughs> stand up straight in the name. Um, and uh, even um, kneel with a very straight back in a corner. Yes, that was, um, she was supposed to be the older sister. She, she had, uh, she has a younger sister, um, very talented musician. And, um, and Kristeva was supposed to be the, she was supposed to be grown up and she was supposed to control her temper and behave. And, um, you know, I keep saying that's why she has so much fine. She's, She's so determined and so strong. Um, and I think, you know, the, those, that early relationship with her father was, was part of that. Her mother too, though, you know, we didn't say any very much about her mother who was a, a, a very brilliant scientist, mathematician um, with, a, with a creative side. She was also um, an illustrator, but she was really a, the exact opposite of of Chris Davis' father, you know, the sort of rational mathematician who helped right. Chris Davis with her schoolwork. <laughs> right, right, right. So she's um, becomes a uh, essayist, journalist, essayist, ac- academic, a, a professor, public intellectual. And then at a certain point, she decides to go into psychoanalysis and eventually become a psychoanalyst. Um, you say at one point to read, I think quoting her, or no, this is you, to read, to listen, to think was not enough. She needed to feel implicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can yeah. you tell us about the decision to, um, to, to go into psychoanalysis and also maybe something about her analyst? Yes. So um, um, I, I think that that um, desire to, to be implicated, to, to remain implicated is, is, I would almost say, characterological um, of Kristeva. She always, you know, it reminds me of when I was a young student in New York and she was writing an essay on the avant-garde, the American avant-garde. And she pulled me in her office and said, okay, we have to, we have to go and see um, five, five avant-garde productions of some kind in New York. I was, I was like 22. Uh, I don't know. I was like, okay. Um, Because she wanted to be, she, she wanted to experience it firsthand. And I would say that, because she had been to Lacan's seminars in Paris and because she was beginning to circulate in the Telquel group and not only with Solers, her, her husband, but with other members of Telquel, many of whom were deeply involved with um, psychoanalytic theory, she wanted, she began, and because of her passion for language and her belief that we are all implicate, not just implicated, but, you know, actually constructed by mm-hmm. language, she wanted to go on the couch. Um, she wanted to speak her, her implication in all of these ideas that she was writing about academically. 
theoretically. Mm -hmm. And she asked a few friends, it's a long story, but eventually um, she was um, um, sort of moved towards Isparand, um, um, a, uh, a German analyst who um, has a long and, and interesting story herself um, as a Jewish woman um, uh, with a very sad long story um, in occupied France. Um, but um, Kristeva, who at that point was deeply immersed in Melanie Klein and Winnicott and others, discovered in Barand an intelligence that both reassured her about her sense of language, the magic of language, the, the, um, and, and the, and the um, importance, existential importance of artistic and literary consciousness. So she found someone who shared her I guess for lack of a better word, I'll say epistemology, mm-hmm. but shared what she cared about, but also someone who challenged her um, at every turn um, and who did not, you know, and I, I think I tell the story about, you know, going and interviewing and seeing if it was a right fit. Mm-hmm. And um, Kristeva, you know, talking about how her relationship with her mother was like a ball bouncing on the floor that she just touched her mother, but never actually got to stayed a bit never stayed a bit yeah and 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 baron said okay you start now (laughs) it was clear Mm -hmm. um yeah i mean for me what was fascinating um about that story um to go into analysis but she had no idea she would become an analyst when she started okay but the analysis um led her to three things that for anglophone readers are essential. It led her to feminism because she um, decided that um, she needed to go to China because she needed to feel implicated if she was going to write about ideograms, etc. So she was going to go to China and which is a whole story I tell, which are some funny bits. Yes. She, she is going to go to China and then she's going to write a book, uh, Chinese women, for um, for this notorious um, publishing firm, De Femme. And through that essay and through that book and through that experience, she, uh, she became a feminist in the eyes of American readers. She decided that she would become an analyst. This was quite far along in the process. Mm-hmm. She, I think this is for me. And third, she decided to become a mother. Um, and those were the three... Um, huge, huge decisions that had, you know, reverberating um, consequences um, that came out of that decision. Yeah. Let's, um, and um, I, let me just, you, you mentioned becoming a mother. Tell us about uh, uh, our readers. Another thing that I didn't know about her son, uh, is it Dev, David? Or, David. Yes, David. David. Um, yeah. David is a um, miracle. David is extraordinary, an extraordinary human being for whom I have enormous affection. I tell the story of Kristeva's pregnancy, which was quite unexceptional. Um, and then David was born and, and adored. And, um, and, and then they began to see that something wasn't 
quite right. Mm -hmm. And it turned out, long story short, that David had what they call an orphan disease, but a a neurological disorder um, that that led to a a series of physical um, um, disabilities. Um, But David never lost an ounce or even a less, whatever less than an ounce is of his intelligence and memory, his photographic memory, and um, and is very witty and smart. And um, uh, it is- you can imagine that uh, what uh, Stoyan gave to Kristeva, she passed on to David. Yeah. Yeah, um, David is very special. He's now, you know, an adult man um, who writes um, and who thinks and who plays. And you know, he's a remarkable human being. But I think, you know, for Kristeva, as soon as she realized that she had a disabled child, um, she, um, she had to find a way to uh, continue as an analyst, continue as a writer, continue as a professor, continue as a wife, continue as a world traveler, mm-hmm. and continue as the mother of um, a disabled son. Which is inspiring, yeah. She has done brilliantly. Yes. Uh, one point, I think you refer to the marches that she would listen to in, in Bulgaria, <laughs> kind of march on. Yes, that was also that was a discovery. Um, she has gone back to Bulgaria a couple of times to make films. Um, and um, I was, of course, watching all of these films. And in one of them, um, I'd have to look up the title of it, um, but she, it shows her she joined during the um, alphabet ceremony. Um, that she had participated in as a child, mm-hmm. which basically is a is a celebration of the of the monks who invented the Slavic alphabet, and in in once a year, children all over Bulgaria put on a, a letter that they parade around mm-hmm. in. It's a celebration of the alphabet. Um, anyway, um, in no other country is there a celebration of the alphabet that I know of. That's interesting. I've learned that there are, are kind of mini celebrations in other parts of Eastern Europe, but oh, I haven't okay. been able to track down um, exactly exactly uh, where. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, anyway, um, her, uh, her her one of these films showed her at one of these alphabet celebrations um, in May. And she began marching with the crowd. And it was just extraordinary to suddenly see this very uh, elegant uh, Parisian woman suddenly marching, (laughs) you know, with such vehemence (laughs) and singing this, you know, Sovietized uh, marching song about writing. Oh, yeah. It's about writing. Right. It was extraordinary. Um, so all of these parts of her, she's quite a puzzle. Yeah. Um, you said that um, it was on the couch. I'm sorry. If I feels like I'm rushing. I just, there's so much to cover. It, yes. You said that on the couch that Kristeva found many of her best ideas. And 
you refer to uh, Julia's conceptual toolbox. That's a big topic, but could uh, you just give an overview of, of that? Well, yeah, I can say a few short things about that. So, so the most famous example of that is um, when she was uh, in analysis with Isbald. She was saying, oh, my mother's here. Oh, my God, and there's the baby. And, and I'm writing this book on Celine, and it's so abject. And Isbald said, oh, that's the word you want. And the notion of abjection became one of Kristeva's most famous concepts. Um, what I call when in my courses, especially with my grad students, what I call her conceptual toolbox, I guess I could summarize very quickly as, first of all, having to do with the question of the intellectual. Mm-hmm. How can you be an intellectual? Certainly today in 2022, how can you be an intellectual? She talks about being contestatory. Right. She talks about putting re- reliance and care at the center of one's practice, you know, as opposed to aggression and mm-hmm. one-upship, et cetera. Um, and, and secondly, I would say there's a batch of concepts that have to do with going back to concepts that have been very important historically in Western philosophy and not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. She wants to reinvent humanism. She wants to rethink universalism. She wants to get away from talking about identity and focus on subjectivity very much in the psychoanalytic sense. Um, And then thirdly and lastly, I think she really wants um, intellectuals to think about vulnerable subjects, okay. all of the kinds of human subjects who are vulnerable. And, and marginalized. Yep. And marginalized, um, exactly. And, 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 and especially because she believes that one of the things that the Western world is suffering from right now, and not only the Western world, but maybe especially, is what she calls an ideality disorder, just right. meaning briefly, that because of the assault of technology on our psyches, we've lost our capacity for psychic space. Mm-hmm. And we've, we are losing our idealism. We're, 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 we're becoming um, disappointed and um, distressed about our, our ideals that we had believed in. And now we're not so sure. And she really sees that as a, t- as a serious crisis that needs um, addressing. Right. Um, yeah. One of the things I really liked about your book uh, is that you go through her, um, I, I don't know what, which section it is, but you go through, she's, she's, there's so many ideas which one associates with Kristeva. And what I found really helpful was that if you want to see her thoughts on the death drive, here's the book. Uh, when she, talked about being a mother of a child with a disability, here's where you look. If you want to look at um, the need to believe and the desire to know, here's the book. You know, it was, it's kind of like you, and a large annotated bibliography, if you will. Well, thank you for saying that because that, that was one of my intentions. Yeah. Because otherwise you don't know what to buy. There's so much. And this way you can zero in on what, what you want to see. Yeah. I say in the introduction that, you know, um, 
Kristeva's relationship to this biography, you know, it's the first one, there'll be many more. I had to be very careful. She doesn't want her private life aired until after her. Sure. Eyes, you know, um, and then I said, you know, in my in the in my relationship to the book, you know, is really about not not you know praising her or putting her on a pedestal, but really trying to honestly recount her life as I believe she'd lived, she's lived it. And then um my reader's relationship, I wrote it for for um interested non-specialist readers. And so what better thing could I do than, you know, sort of point towards various kinds of, of readings because there's so much, right. Um, there's so much, there's so and much. I try to mention, you know, I think I say at one point, you know, I'm trying to mention 50 books, you know, something about yeah. 50 books um, that isn't just a throwaway line or right. something terribly superficial or right to actually say something meaningful that will make my reader want to go read that book. No, absolutely. You, you, you succeed brilliantly at that. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I, um, oh boy, we're running out of time. Can you tell us what is this Sabina? Ooh, how long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> In 30 seconds. No, Ooh. no, go. I'm just kidding. Tell us what is this? Okay, so the short version is um, that in the former communist countries of the of Eastern Europe, um, various kinds of archives were set up um, that were uh, attempting to identify um, folks who had been working secretly with the communist regimes and were agents or spies, if you like. And those archives in, in Bulgaria were declassified in 2007. And lo and behold, slowly it became apparent that Kristeva was named in those archives and that she had been an agent of the deus of the of the of the horrible secret service. There's a lot to say about this, but in 2018, in March of uh, March, uh, I remember March 28, 2018, uh, I got a phone call that um, it was public that she had been named. And of course, she was aghast. She was horrified and has denied it totally. And when the New York Times called me and asked me what I thought, I said, um, almost without thinking, I, I believe her. I believe her completely. And I go through all the reasons why. But I said, the most important reason is that if she had been if if she had been forced in order to protect her own life or the life of her family to do that she would have um she would have written about it when right. the wall came down she right. can't she couldn't have helped herself right. the thing that's so sad i'll just say this quickly i know we're running out of time but the thing that's so sad about this whole affair really ultimately is that um um you know i mentioned her sweetheart Svetan Stoyanov back in Bulgaria. Um, in early 1971, he accepted a challenge to go and try to convince Georgi Markov, who's probably one of the most famous poisoned um, uh -huh. dissidents in history. With the to, umbrella. Uh, with the umbrella tip, uh, right. Uh -huh, to uh -huh. convince Markov to come back to Bulgaria. And he failed. He did not, her sweetheart did not convince Markov to come back to Sofia. 
And, and in mid-June of 1971, when Svetan Stoyanov and Julia Kristeva were the two most famous intellectuals in Bulgaria, Stoyanov died. He died under very strange circumstances. And one has to be very careful because there's no proof, but I believe that he was killed mm-hmm. um, by the dais. Um, and um, and in the in the archive that names Kristeva as a spy, they give mid-June 1971 as the date of, of her engagement as a spy. And, um, and for what's sad, really sad, is from that moment on, from mid-June 1971, um, they surveilled her wow. and her husband and her child and her family. And we still don't quite know what they did, what they threatened her parents with back in Bulgaria. And she <laughs> had no idea, no idea. And it's called it's called blind surveillance. I mean, there was it was a technical kind of surveillance. And it, it really devastated her. And yeah. it really devastated her that the Western press jumped on it and didn't question all of this, um, all of this uh, fake news, oh, all of yeah, right. assembling all right. of this, all of this politicking from a period that very few Anglophones understand. So her, was, her self-defense when she is asked? She doesn't know. She didn't know. She didn't know. And when they bring up like, well, you had tea with uh, Mr. Kostov. Yes, I did. And yeah, I did. <laughs> he had sent me books from France when I was a student in Bulgaria. I had no idea he was a spy. Right. Of course, he he um, he actually um, um, had um, left Bulgaria in 1977. He 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 um he wanted no no more of it. Um, but in any case, she she has answers. You know, well, what about the time you said power to the people? Um, I you know ironically, and she said, well, <laughs> this poet or this wannabe poet came yeah. to my apartment door. So she she can she can talk about each incident that's brought up. Right. But overall. It's her disappointment and worry and anger that that the press can be so gullible. Oh yeah, about yeah. these, uh, and it's happened to a lot of people. Right, it's happened to a lot of people. Um, unfortunately, we're past our time, um, Alice. I really appreciate. There's so much more. I think that you know the death of her father. The uh, this is uh, the she's had a lot of deaths and a lot of resurrections in her life. Um, as she says, and, uh, it's a fascinating story and it makes one want to read her books and one knows where to look. So thank you so much for speaking with me. And, um, thank you, August. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.